0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, wherever you may live. Well, we had a great introduction the other night to Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle, but we are now going to begin a two-part series in Shays' Rebellion about defiance. It's an interesting uh, topic. You know, defiance itself is a a vague term. And in today's unstable world, it seems like defiance itself has become more of a permanent norm. However, defiance itself has been in existence probably since the beginning of time. It might be safe to say that even defiance alone um, dates back to the time that uh, Jesus Christ himself was alive. After all, One might point out that um, Jesus' actions could have been an example of defiance towards the established guard being the Roman Empire. After all, anybody who um, was different and did not adhere to the uh, traditions of the uh, Pharisees and the uh, Sadducees or the Phadgeses, anybody who is that uh, old guard group who wanted their rulers to come um, dressed in fancy robes, crowns on their hat, or on their head, rather. That was their motto, but of course Jesus himself didn't fit the criteria. But then again, he didn't want to be that criteria. He was just Mr. Average Joe who came in and represented um, a new way of thinking, a new way of life, and of course that was a threat to um, the old guard establishment. But it is fair to say that Jesus' presence to those who were skeptical of him was seen as defiance. But we should uh, turn our attention to uh, what we're discussing in the post-revolutionary war era as we begin uh, the first of a two-part series on defiance. My first question to you all, my listeners, will be the following. What does defiance mean? exactly mean? Well, for starters, the term alone has multiple meanings. Well, how true that is, given that I said earlier that defiance is a vague um, topic. But, I've uh, read where its basic interpretations range from open resistance to bold disobedience. Open resistance often refers to Resisting authority or or opposition, okay. You're um, out in the open. You um, are being told by um, someone above you who who is constantly um, making your life miserable, whether it's a bully or just someone of higher authority that has um, not um, returned your requests to where. You are not going to leave until your requests have been met or until let alone your voice itself has been heard. How about uh, defi- But a better way to sum up defiance, in my opinion, is that it pertains to one's ability in standing up against an opponent or an institution of authority. Well, when I think of institution of, of authority, how about um, Government. And if I'm not mistaken, um, didn't the 13 colonies, most notably um, Massachusetts, given that Massachusetts was the, um, the cradle of American independence, didn't the people of Massachusetts uh, go above and beyond to um, stand up to, oppre- to an oppressive institution of authority? <laughs> How about the Crown? How about Parliament? After all, Parliament was passing those measures without the direct consent of its subjects, the people, a.k.a. the colonists. So that, to me, is an example of where the people of Massachusetts took it upon themselves to demonstrate defiance, not just so much in voicing opposition towards um, such measures like the Stamp Act or the Townshend Acts, But they also took up measures by um, dumping chests of tea into the Charles River in December of 1773. How about um, tarring and feathering those whom were um, loyal to the crown? So let's move forward um, into now the 1780s, which is where we're going to be, most notably um, in the mid-1780s. But... Before we really concentrate on the mid-1780s, we should um, learn a little bit about 1780, even though in 1780 the American Revolutionary War hasn't come to an end. But in 1780, I'll just mention it right now, Massachusetts has established a new constitution, a new state constitution, that is. So we'll uh, discuss that here shortly, but let's just keep it in mind because it will come into play. My next question to you all is the following. Was more than one region of Massachusetts in rebellion before and going into 1786? Yes. However, in 1786, the majority of the rebellious activity in Massachusetts was taking place, took place within the western part of the state. I will mention to you all here soon where else it would have taken place that was um, in the non-western part of that state. Now, western Massachusetts, when I think of that area, I think of it as areas that are 50 miles and further west of Boston, which is obviously is the capital of Massachusetts. Western Massachusetts, do you all think that that region is... um, Rural, And by being rural, is it safe to say that it is predominantly farm country? Well, how about an answer to both? Yes, it's rural, and it is predominantly farm country. It turns out that Western Massachusetts has a majority of the state's population. Does anybody want to take a guess at what the percentage of the state's population in Western Massachusetts may be? I'll give you some choices choice A, 80%, choice B, 90%, choice C, 85. The answer is 85. So we're looking at a population of around 85% or more in western Massachusetts. The uh, family farm properties com- comprised or rather revolved around small family farms. So. The small family farms, it could be fair to say that maybe the acreage of these farms could be maybe at the minimum 20 acres. That's not to say that there could be some family farms that could be more than um, 20 acres. But when I think of a small family farm, I'm thinking at best probably 15 to 20 acres um, as a best uh, 101 example I can provide. However, um, I did see on a map online of Massachusetts that in modern day times there are uh, seven regions that make up the uh, the state. But as for western Massachusetts, it's not just western Massachusetts. In today's time, there are three regions that, that uh, comprise uh, greater western Massachusetts. You have central, which is where towns like Worcester are. Then you have the Pioneer Valley, which is in the middle between the Central and Berkshire regions. Uh, The Berkshires um, are the furthest most point in western Massachusetts. That region is right along the Massachusetts-New York state line. That is where the Berkshire Mountain Range is. So uh, farm owners in western Massachusetts were known as Yeomen you know, I've heard of that term Yeoman before, uh, especially at uh, Jamestown. Uh, that is Jamestown, Virginia. Uh, long story short, it turns out that uh, Captain John Smith, uh, he came from a, a yeoman family. But in Massachusetts, the yeomen were referred to um, really as uh, men whom were holding and um, cultivating their property. They were basically working a small landed estate, okay? That, you know, may not be the grandest, may not be the most top of the line, but it is a small landed estate, 15 to 20 acres at minimum, but that's not to say that it could exceed the threshold of minimum being 15 to 20 acres. Then you have um, male workers referred to as laborers, However, yeomen and laborers in western Massachusetts go hand in hand. The laborers are the sons of the yeomen whom were next in line for working the family land. Interesting contrast between uh, laborers and what was referred to in Virginia for years as primogeniture. Primogeniture in Virginia basically was a practice where The eldest-born male son per uh, well-to-do families would receive um, the largest share of uh, land inheritance upon the death of the father, or just upon inheritance in general. But of course, by the time Thomas Jefferson became governor of Virginia, he abolished uh, that practice of primogeniture. I don't know if I can really make a true comparison with the yeoman and the laborer with primogeniture, but there are a few similarities, considering that the laborers, being the sons of the yeomen, were next in line for working the family land. Were many farm families throughout western Massachusetts successful at being self-sufficient? When we think of self-sufficient folks, how about being independent? How about uh, being less reliant upon, say, government or Less reliant upon neighbors for assistance. You know, I would like to believe that um, many farm families in Western Massachusetts did everything there was to be self-sufficient, and that can be true. But unfortunately, many of these families were never really able to achieve one hundred percent, a one hundred percent successful uh, operation at being completely independent, or let alone self-sufficient. However, each village did have basic essentials for everyday um, use, such as a blacksmith for foraging iron, or for foraging iron, I should say, a tanner whom would make buckskin out of deerskin, the wheelwright who made carts and wagons, the cooper who made barrels, To a midwife, whom would arrive at all hours of the night to help with childbirth. So, while yes, um, many of these um, families, although they may not have been successful all the time at being self sufficient, they still managed to get by day to day with the uh, basic uh, essentials that I mentioned a moment ago. As long as you can get by that way that's not always a bad thing but on the other hand if there are circumstances that are beyond your control wouldn't it be fair to say that you should um, request some form of of assistance from above meaning your government and where is the government in Massachusetts folks? It's been the capital of Massachusetts for years. Boston was a Let's find out about this man. Um, Was Dr. Nehemiah Hines of Pelham, Massachusetts, a specialist in other areas besides medicine? I'm sure many of you all are thinking to yourselves now, um, who is this man, uh, Dr. Uh, Nehemiah Hines? I mean, after all, um, how is he uh, connected with, uh, say, Daniel Shays? Well, we'll find that out here soon. But nonetheless, let's talk about Dr. Nehemiah Hines here. He sounds like he's someone of a prominent status. Well, for starters, he is. And uh, Pelham is um, in western Massachusetts. It's uh, west of Worcester. But is Dr. Hines a specialist in other areas besides medicine? Yes. Come 1786, he became a town leader including the town moderator. He had previously served as a selectman, and what we know a selectman as being someone who is a local government board member. Dr. Hines and the selectman were Pelham's chief administrative officers. Might be safe to say that they might as well have been a jack-of-all-trades, it turns out that Dr. Hines and the, uh, and the other chief administrative officers were responsible for seeing to it that the town's children were educated, including laying out bridges and roads. How about that? They might as well have been considered to be board of supervisor members of their time. The officers were also required to protect the town against outsiders. You know, that seems uh, all like, you know, good, noble tasks to do, but wouldn't some people say that's a, um, not a violation, but an, but more of an excessive um, request of uh, tasks being asked to do that uh, should be divvied out by leaders in Boston as to who should be in charge of protecting the, the town's... Um, the towns from a a larger um, perspective against outsiders. Um, To me, that's a decision that should be made at the greater state level. That's not to say that you can't have, you know, local sheriffs doing their job, but even local sheriffs can't be asked to do everything. It seems like western Massachusetts, to me, is different from the rest of the state. How so? Well, the majority of these towns had setups similar to Pelham, where the moderators presided over town meetings, which included discussing who is best suited to run the town. Nobody was excluded from the town government meetings. Hey, I think that's a great thing. Regardless of your status, you should be allowed to participate. After all, if you don't let these people participate, then how are you going to have good turnout at le- at um, elections? How are you going to have good turnout at meetings? However, um, while nobody was excluded from the town government meetings in uh, Western Massachusetts, um, in many in all, many or I should say all of Western Massachusetts's um, cities and villages, Boston, however, had sanctioned the Western Massachusetts governmental system. Sanction's another word for prohibiting. However, it had become a norm for Western Massachusetts settlers to ignore orders from Boston. Is that an example of defiance right there, folks? Ignoring? In this case, is defiance both good and bad. Well, one could say it could be bad, if the people of Western Massachusetts have ignored the orders repeatedly. On the other hand, it could be a good thing that they're ignoring, especially if it turns out to be true that um, these people have not had their voices um, heard for, say, longer than one year's time. You know, it's one thing not to listen to what the opposition may have to say, but the longer you ignore them the greater the likelihood that they are going to ignore um, order. In other words, why should they respect order if their voices aren't going to be heard? Well, how did legislators in Boston determine whom was eligible to vote based upon a man's individual status? Many of you all are going to really um, appreciate this. If a man was worth 20 pounds, he could be eligible to vote in town elections. So town elections, there are, you know, say local elections. You know, for example, when I think of town elections, I think of, say, voting for someone to be like, you know, the next county administrator or the next uh, clerk of the court or perhaps... um, someone running in modern-day times for like a Board of Supervisor uh, position. What I found interesting was that 20 pounds sterling is the equivalent to $28.35 in US dollars. Even if you had 20 pounds back then, just to be able to vote in town elections in Massachusetts was better than nothing. As for those men who were worth between 40 and 60 pounds, they could vote in Massachusetts elections. So, in other words, they could not only could they vote in town elections, they could vote in uh, what we would refer to as um, state elections for statewide offices, like your state senator, um, your, state house of, your state representative, or what we refer to in Virginia as the House of Delegates. Statewide office, how about like governor? Lieutenant Governor Attorney General Well All western Massachusetts towns Ignored the election rule procedures From Boston As I said earlier And I'll say it again All men regardless of status Were allowed to attend town meetings As well as submitting a ballot Many town Many towns Elected men Whom weren't eligible to vote Hey um, I don't see anything wrong with electing men who weren't eligible to vote, considering that uh, it seems like Western Massachusetts is, um, its people aren't being treated properly. So, hey, it might be fair to say at this time that, shoot, maybe the people of Western Massachusetts ought to just form their own separate state. Even that alone could cause um, a lot of, um, Nasty tension among the people in the eastern part of the state, and it might even cause um, people like George Washington to wonder, hey, if the state of Massachusetts is splitting into two states, could that lead to um, potential anarchy? Maybe. I'm sure many of you all are learning stuff about this uh, matter that you probably never were taught before. And you know what? I think that's a great thing. Just when we think we've learned everything there is to know about a subject, we're always being reminded that there's something else out there that's new to be discussed. Whom exactly was Dr. Nehemiah Hines's neighbor? In other words, rather, I should say, whom exactly was Dr. Nehemiah Hines' neighbors with? None other than Daniel and Abigail Shays. Okay, so folks, this is where the Shays now come into play. They aren't just random people off the streets. They are neighbors with the Hineses. They may not live next door to them, but they, are along, they live along the same stretch of road that is, uh, both of these uh, families do. Was Daniel Shays from Massachusetts, and did he serve in the American Revolutionary War? Uh, The answer to part one is yes. Daniel Shays was born in Hopkinton, which is located outside of Worcester. He was born between um, between April and August of 1747. That means he's only four years younger than Thomas Jefferson. He would have been four years older than James Madison. 12 years younger than um, John Adams and Paul Revere, and 10 years younger than uh, John Hancock. Just to name a few um, other prominent people who were either born just before he was or uh, right after. He is the second of six siblings. He spent his early years as a landless farm laborer. Hey, you got to start somewhere if you want to make a name for yourself. I mean, nothing will be handed to you, but. You do have to start somewhere, even if it means beginning landless. In 1772, two years after the infamous Boston Massacre incident happened, 1772, Daniel marries Abigail Gilbert. They become parents to six children and reside in Brookfield outside of Worcester. As for whether or not uh, Daniel Shea served in the American Revolutionary War, uh, that answer is yes. He rose to the rank of captain in the 5th Massachusetts Regiment, or that regiment being a part of the Continental Army, by 1777. He was involved in the Siege of Boston. He fought at Bunker Hill as well as Lexington and Saratoga. And, of course, Saratoga is important, uh, for one. Um, It was the battle that basically um, secured... I wouldn't say so much for one. It was really the battle that allowed the French to be ultimately persuaded by Benjamin Franklin to come fight along our side. And to think that um, Daniel Shays was a part of uh, this battle, it's probably very likely that he would have um, met Benedict Arnold and he probably would have uh, met Horatio Gates but Daniel Shays was, um, nonetheless, he played a very big part in this uh, war. After all, he, we can say that by being at Saratoga and defeating the British there, that he helped um, secure America's uh, future with a, with, a, with its first ally. That is the young nation's first ally, still considering that we're still well into our infancy. We haven't even won this war, but yet we've secured an ally in France. Did the Heinz and Shays families have much in common? I would like to think they did, but it turns out, folks, that they did not. That doesn't mean, though, that they don't get along. It doesn't mean that they're not friends. It's just that um, they have um, differences. It turns out that the Hines family had far more long-term roots or ties to Pelham, where someone within the family was either elected selectman or moderator, whereas the Shays family were newcomers to Pelham. However, Daniel uh, was no stranger to uh, public service. When When his family moved to Pelham, he served on the Pelham Committee of Safety. So it's fair to say that each family is uh, contributing something good to the greater community. However, the Heinz family had more wealth than the, than the Shays family. The Heinzes owned a farm containing more than 100 acres. The Heinz family ranked in the top 5% of uh, Pelham, and they're a, their assessments, or I should say, rather, economic value was three times greater versus what the Shays family had. So I, you know, think about it. The Heinzes are in the top five percent of uh, Pelham assessments. I think that would be the equivalent of saying that they would be like in the wealthiest one to two percent of society. And it's not so much that they that the family alone owns more than a hundred acres. The Hineses also own um, a tavern, and, you know, he's a doctor, so he obviously um, is bringing in some form of good steady income from his practice, so not only being a doctor is to his advantage, but owning a farm and a tavern also add greater um, asset and wealth. It's interesting, he's at the, the Heinzes are at the top of um, Pelham Assessments, But yet, at the same time, it's almost as if they're not being appreciated for how they've contributed to the greater society of Massachusetts from those living um, well east of them, a.k.a. Boston. The Shays family, however, ranked in the second 20% of the town assessments. Okay, well, sometimes it's good to come in distant second, and the Shays family somehow is contributing also. We're going to uh, pay very careful attention now to July of 1786. What's important about July 18th, 1786? Well, what I find interesting about 1786 now is that we are te- we've are we just celebrated... <laughs> well, I don't know if people are went out and um, had barbecues and picnics. I don't even think they would have even come close to doing anything that was fireworks-related. We did, on one hand mark 10 years of independence from England, but yet we're still living under our own fledgling system of government that, within a matter of time, may no longer exist. And I think we probably all know why. But July 18, 1786, Dr. Hines attended an emergency meeting involving the Pelham Town Selectmen, The meeting itself was triggered by news from Boston. Well, this news obviously isn't good. But let's find out why the news isn't so good, folks. July 8th, 1786, 10 days earlier, the Massachusetts legislature unanimously agreed. That is, unanimously, um, you know... The vast majority of the legislature legislators, I'm not sure how many legislators made up the Massachusetts state legislature, but it is fair to say that the vast majority of them agreed unanimously to um, end its uh, work for the entire year. In other words, they unanimously agreed that their work was completed, and. Okay, they've also decided that they are not going to readjourn until January of next year. So here we are, July 1786. That means, technically in a sense, folks, that um, seven months from now, that's when we'll decide, six to seven months from now, that's when we're going to decide to reconvene. Six months, rather, I should say. So, you know, a lot can happen in six months. You know, it's one thing to say that, oh, well, we've completed our work and we won't readjourn until the start of the following year, January 1787. But that's not to say that in the eyes of others that work had not been finished. This decision upon the Massachusetts legislature infuriated Dr. Hines as well as the selectmen of Pelham. Here's the question we're all um itching to know the answer to the question that we're itching to know had the massachusetts legislature in years past adjourned without addressing the needs of the of western massachusetts's people yes unfortunately yes to make matters worse com- communities throughout western massachusetts had issued multiple petitions that were polite But every time these petitions were issued and sent to Boston, they got rejected. You know, the people of Boston, most notably the legislators to the east, don't really seem to give, they don't really seem to give a damn, pardon my French, about what's going on to the west. And... It doesn't help, too, that uh, the economy is in turmoil in western Massachusetts. So, if the economy there is in turmoil, is, is it fair to say that the state government is doing nothing to resolve the matter? Yeah. It doesn't make it right, but they're doing nothing about it. So, I want to challenge you all right here to a series of questions Let's pretend as though we are the people of Western Massachusetts. We've got a lot of questions now to think about. Such questions arose from various petitions previously addressed. Okay, let's listen to one of them right here. How were farmers to pay debts and taxes with hard money when none was available? When I think of hard money, how about paying back a debt like in sterling... Or like a Spanish millet, a coin that could be uh, cut into eighths. Very few people in western Massachusetts can even come close to obtaining hard currency. So if you can't afford hard currency, what is the only kind of money you would even be able to afford? How about um, paper money? Of course, paper money doesn't have the same kind of money as hard currency. But at the same time, if people seem to benefit more with paper money in terms of paying their debts off, then they should be allowed to have that access. But it seems like the legislators in Boston are totally convinced that everyone, regardless of their status in society, including the lowest of the ranks, will somehow be able to find access to hard money, and once that happens, then everybody will be able to go about their merry way and conduct, and conduct business left and right without um, any further uh, problems. Wishful thinking, but that's not the way it, it really, um, that's not the way it worked. Uh, why did hard-working law-abiding men have to deal with multiple hurdles in the court system? You know, regardless of the matter that you're trying to resolve, why should you have to go through so many le- loopholes when you might only have to go when it should only require one level of um, of a jurisdiction, one level of um, mediation? Why have to go through other loopholes? Why did the state seat of government remain in Boston, whereas other states had located their capitals to central locations? Boston is along the um, harbor. You know, we look at uh, capitals in Virginia in the past. Williamsburg was um, in the Tidewater region. It wasn't right along the water, but it wasn't far from the water. The capital of Virginia is now Richmond. It's been that way since 1780, but it was relocated largely in part because uh, men like Thomas Jefferson were truly convinced that by relocating the capital further inland it would prevent uh, the British from invading um, from invading uh, further west well that turned out to be the exact opposite but that's a whole other subject for something else at another time but the bottom line is so many of the other states have relocated their capitals further inland but but Massachusetts has done the opposite was all this done to prevent western Massachusetts' people, not just so much the people, but their representatives from getting to Boston considering the distance and travel being lengthy. In other words, uh, when you go to extreme, go to the furthest points of western Massachusetts, like Springfield, for example, that could be at least a five-hour drive from in today's time from Springfield to Boston, but in 1786, we, we could be looking at at least two-day's journey by horse and buggy just to get to Boston. So these are questions that we must take into consideration if we were in uh, the people of Western Massachusetts' shoes. Questions per, per petitions addressed involved complaints from taxes, debts, shortage of legal tender, paper money, to structure of government, Complaints also included state constitution from 1780, as well as the men running the state, a.k.a. the rulers. Weren't elected government officials supposed to protect versus oppress its people? Well, to me, that's an obvious answer right there. Yes, they should be protecting versus oppressing the people. What had the Revolutionary War achieved? You know, think about it. It seems like a a whole new um, attitude in governing. The Massachusetts legislature ignored Westerners' pleas by saying the following. Wait until next year. The greater the pleas got ignored, the greater the trouble that lied ahead. You know, this wasn't a one-time thing, folks. Oh, wait until next year? The more that gets said, the the greater um, the people whom are being oppressed will want to um take measures into their own hands that that the um that those on the opposition would probably never imagine it might be fair to say that the people in Boston and in the outlying areas just on the outskirts of Boston probably not only do they see um Westerners in Massachusetts or Western Massachusetts people as being inferior. They probably don't see them as the type who are probably the most educated of people. But you know what? (laughs) Look at Dr. Nehemiah Hines. He's a doctor. Okay? He's educated. Uh, So we will probably start to learn here soon, folks, that there are plenty of men in Western Massachusetts who are just as educated as their fellow counterparts east of them in Boston. What measure uh, did Dr. Hines and Pelham selectmen propose to better address their grievances beyond petitions? Okay, this is where we've got to come up with new, a newer strategy. They went about forming, or I should say, establishing countywide conventions. Okay. This is where you can get mass crowds to come together. And other towns followed Pelham Selectman's proposal measure for, getting, for setting up countywide conventions in the summer of 1786. This could be the new version of what was done leading up to uh, shots heard around the world at Lexington and Concord that we referred to as those committees of correspondence. Now, the majority of these uh, countywide convention gatherings uh, were held in western Massachusetts towns, but reform in general was also supported by towns south of Boston, like Taunton in Bristol County, which, had, which held its convention uh, on July 23rd of 1786. Uh, Taunton, being south of Boston, is closer to a, a place known as uh, Seekonk, and how do I know that? Well, through having work through working in the uh, trucking industry uh, as my primary job, uh, there is a Estes uh, Express Lines terminal. Uh, well, there's a handful of them in Massachusetts, but there there is one south of Boston called Seekonk, and it services uh, Taunton. So, believe it or not, folks, there is a uh, town well west of um, in the opposite direction of western Massachusetts. Uh, being south of Boston, that is um, starting to feel um, the impacts that um, that the that the legislator that the legislature has um, imposed upon uh, the people of, of a greater will. Hey, what did uh, the convention gathering on uh, August twenty-first of seventeen eighty-six at the home of Colonel Seth Murray in Hatfield generate? and Hatfield's a a western uh, Massachusetts town, but this convention was probably the granddaddy of them all. It approved 21 reform articles, 17 of them being grievances. Such measures also included advocating creation of a new state constitution, reforming the state's tax system, addressing the shortage of legal tender and how about to demanding immediate full recall of the entire state legislature? In other words, how about um, booting all the state legislators out of office? That, to me, is a what I might call a draconian measure. In other words, it, it, the most extreme radical measure proposed. At the same time, though, folks, what if you did... Um, successfully, successfully recall the entire state legislature, then how in the world could government function in Massachusetts? You talk about running the risk of greater anarchy? Yeah, I, I would say so. But do I um, empathize with the people of western Massachusetts? Absolutely. You know, their um, voices have not been heard, and they have addressed several um, essential matters. However, demanding immediate full recall of the entire state legislature, I would find that to have been probably the most extreme of proposals, okay? You ask all these legislators to step aside and uh, be voted out, then whom are you going to replace them with? Let's talk about, let's think about that. What happened event-wise late August 1786 involving Dr. Hines's brother, Captain Joseph Hines, that had major significance? On the final Tuesday of August 1786, Captain Joseph Hines led several hundred Greenwich and Pelham men toward Northampton. They were met up with forces from Amherst, including the hill towns to the northwest, as well as from West Springfield to the south. Now, you know, when I think of Greenwich, there, I know there is a Greenwich, Connecticut, but at this point in time, folks, there is a Greenwich, Massachusetts, but I, but I'm pretty convinced that that town does not exist anymore. But that's, but that's my hunch. Now. When I think of, of course, when all of us, real quick, think of Massachusetts, we think of Boston, we think of Salem, Marblehead, Gloucester, uh, Cape Cod, most notably like Hyannis, um, Falmouth, and then, you know, the islands um, that still make up Cape, the Cape Cod region like uh, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, but when I think of western Massachusetts, I think of, you know, the towns uh, like Worcester, Uh, I also think of uh, towns like uh, Springfield and how ironic Springfield should be recognized heavily because that's where uh, Dr. James A. Naismith is from. He um, invented the game of uh, basketball, and that is where the National Basketball Hall of Fame is located. There is Holyoke, and there is a college there called Mount Holyoke um, College, You've got um, Agawam, there's uh, Chicopee. I know uh, Chicopee because there's an Estes uh, terminal in that part of the state that uh, services uh, places in western Connecticut, most notably uh, Hartford. You've got other places like um, Greenfield, uh, Shelburne, you've got uh, Monson, uh, Hadley, um, Waitley, just to name a few, but those, but when you think of western Massachusetts, you can think of uh, those towns in particular. And um, you know western Massachusetts, that also borders New York State, most notably uh, the capital of Albany. So, and of course you've got Northampton there as well. So yes, uh, Captain Hines um, has, is leading several hundred men. Most notably from Greenwich and Pelham toward Northampton, where he is meeting up with forces from Amherst, including um, men from an assortment of other towns to the northwest as well as from West Springfield to the south. But the primary objective at stake is this, folks. They are all, con- all these forces are convening upon the Northampton courthouse. They have confronted three justices. The militia forces went about assembling successfully to where they blocked the entry doorway, keeping the three justices and the sheriff out. Captain Hines and Captain Joel Billings of Amherst demanded for the court to adjourn without conducting any official business. Why do you think they would have wanted these justices to have not conducted any official business? Well, for many of these men, it's probably fair to say that they were struggling to um, make payments, maybe just not on their properties, but payments on existing debts. And if these payments weren't made, then yes, they could have run the risk of losing everything that they had worked so vigorously hard for. And remember, folks, I think it's fair to say that 99%, or let alone 100%, of these men don't even have hard money, and that is hard currency to pay whatever existing debts they have uh, remaining to be paid. Uh, Probably all these men rely on paper money as a means for everyday survival necessity. Well, the three justices, including the sheriff, agree to shut down the court until November. This is a victory for um, Dr. Hines and, um, and for um, Captain Joel Billings. Not Dr. Hines, but uh, Captain Hines and uh, Captain Joel Billings. This is a victory for these men, not only for the leaders, but for the greater forces present. However, celebration might be short-lived. Did state authorities in Boston start taking greater notice of rebel activity, especially after Captains, Hines, and Billings, their forces, considering that their forces disrupted the Northampton Court? Yes. What, what do you think was the most predominant symbol of a state authority in the West? The judicial system. And how so? Because the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 never approved of the state judicial system in the western part of the state. We'll find out here shortly why um, this uh, Constitution has got so many um, flaws or let alone got so many um, loopholes that have made Westerners in Massachusetts very, very upset and adamant on new reforms whom did Massachusetts state authorities turn to uh, for suppressing rebellion well how about local militias the requirement for all militiamen to respond when necessary in states time of need the 1780 constitution placed limits on citizen soldiers electing their own officers Head officers were appointed by the governor and the governor's council. However, authorities were dependent on local men of property to turn out, or I should say show up in times of crisis. What town uh, after Northampton would be confronted next by angry crowds? How about Worcester? 50 miles uh, west of Boston the judges tried holding the first day of scheduled uh court session early september but were den- but were denied access as nearly 100 men armed with bayonets blocked the courthouse door i can't imagine being one of these judges here you are trying to get entry into the um into the court building or what I don't know if we would consider it a modern day courthouse like we do in today's times, but I can't imagine being confronted by a hundred men armed with bayonets. Who was the Chief Justice for the, um, for the courts in Worcester? It turns out he was a former American Revolutionary War um, officer, and he has held a number of high other posts. His name is Artemis Ward. Well, Artemis Ward went above and beyond to reason with the crowd, but the um but the more unruly they became, Artemis Ward got heckled. You know, he got he had objects thrown at him. And probably the other judges did too. It's almost like deja vu in a sense with what happened Sixteen years earlier, the boston massacre when when the crowd started heckling objects at the eight British soldiers, only in the end for the soldiers to fire in, to fire into the crowd as a result of the crowd's unruly uh behaviors. you know was this incident at Worcester isolated, considering that it happened in Worcester? No, the day after more rebel insurgents arrived to Worcester. To the courthouse, that is, General Jonathan Warner, upon Governor James Bowden's orders, was called out to called out the Worcester militia. Here is what blew me away when I read this book back at the start of the year. Did the militia did the Worcester militia agree to come out? No, they didn't. Rather a majority of the of these militiamen joined the insurgents. In other words, they empathized with the insurgents. Perhaps many of these militiamen knew of other people who were being denied the right to have a proper say in their government. Maybe the militiamen realized that this wasn't the battle, or that this wasn't the right battle to pick. Maybe the militiamen realized that if they did anything that was unlawful, that their names would be tarnished, not just as individuals, but their family as a greater whole would be tarnished. So the Worcester judges decided unanimously to postpone or halt all criminal and civil cases till late fall. Where has Daniel Shays been this entire time? Well, he didn't participate in any of the activities at the Northampton Courthouse. He had the opportunity to do so, but he declined. I mean, we do know that Daniel Shays is a member, served in the American Revolutionary War. We do know that he is um, actively involved with the uh, Pelham Committee of Safety. Could it be at this point in time that maybe he's concerned about the overall safety and well-being of uh Not just his community in Pelham, but that of greater western Massachusetts? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that Daniel Shays might participate at some point down the road soon. Well, I will say this, folks. Our time is coming to an end here uh, shortly for this uh, podcast episode tonight. But we really have covered a lot of ground. I think it's fair to say that we have learned a great deal about uh, people in western Massachusetts so far. We have learned a great deal about the struggles they've endured. We've learned about how they have went above and beyond to start voicing their concerns peacefully. But over time, most notably in the last five to six years, their voices have been denied to where You're only going to take but so much of a beating. You know, even 10 years earlier, uh, the people of Boston had that same mentality when they finally decided that, hey, we're not afraid to go head-to-toe, or really, let alone, I should say, Massachusetts, that, hey, we're not afraid to go head-to-toe with the mightiest empire in the world by um, squaring off at Lexington and Concord. But at the same time, now that we, are, um, now that we have um, gotten our independence from England, why are we reverting backwards now and not giving the greater public, most notably the people of Massachusetts, of Western Massachusetts, their proper fundamental rights? You know, governments, are, um, governments from within are dysfunctional at times. Just because there's a democracy, it doesn't mean that democracies are always hunky-dory, 100% perfect. After all, our forefathers knew... I don't know if I could say at this point in time that we do have a democracy. We do, but but it's a fledgling one under the Articles of Confederation. But even as many of our forefathers said, democracy itself is the most fragile form of government. And right now, in 1786... We are living in some fragile, um, we're living in a very fragile period of time, the post-Revolutionary War era. So, when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to discuss the second part of defiance. And I'm sure you all are wondering, well, what else is there to talk about with regards to defiance? Well, hold on to your seatbelts, folks, because if I tell you all now, there would be no need to have a second part to on discussing defiance. Thank you again for um, always listening. And you all are great listeners. Um, Keep up the great work and continue to share with others out there what you have been learning from my podcasts. After all, the sky's the limit. Take care for now and stay safe.